The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Let me encourage you to take a copy of God's Word and turn with me in the Gospel of John in the New Testament. The Gospel of John and chapter 12 as we look at a Palm Sunday text or what they're often called in the New Testament, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That's on John chapter 12. You can find that on page 899. Do grab a Bible from the Purack if you need one and open with us to John chapter 12 as we read the scriptures and hear them proclaimed together as a church acknowledging that we are under the authority of the scriptures as a church. We believe God's word and so we attend to it with reverence as God's own word to us, his people. Now, there are uh, in all four gospels accounts of the triumphal entry but we're looking at John today for a particular reason, and we'll say more about that in just a moment. But if you've got your Bible open there in John chapter 12, we'll be looking at starting at verse 12 and following. But let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the word that we might hear it in faith today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pause now to say that we believe the scriptures. We believe that here you speak to us the word of life. And we pray that we would attend to it with faith given by your Holy Spirit. So as you moved the Apostle John to record these words by your Spirit, may your Spirit also rest upon us that we might receive them in faith, illuminating our minds, giving life to our hearts, moving our wills to be a faithful people. Lord, bless your Word to us today, we ask. In the power of Jesus' name we ask it. In, amen. And now hear the Word of God at John 12. We'll be reading the text from John 12 and then later turning to John 15 together, so you'll want to make sure you have your Bible open. But this is John 12 at verse 12 under the heading, The Triumphal Entry. Hear the Word of God. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. So may he write eternal truth on our hearts today. And do keep your Bible open because we'll be looking here and in John chapter 15. So I imagine that many of you are familiar with the Palm Sunday story, and it is a familiar one, but there's a lot of details in it that actually complicate this narrative quite a bit. But the simple aspect and the short version of it is that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, and people get all kinds of excited, calling Him the King and shaking palm branches at Him, hence why we call it Palm Sunday. Jesus gets on a donkey and rides into town. But... There's something more that's happening uh, in the details. There's something significant about what Jesus is doing and why he's doing it. And John gives us this editorial clue 
that there's something more that's happening that the first observers of the first Palm Sunday didn't really see or understand that I'm hoping that you and I won't miss. You see what John says there in verse 16? He gives us, as the Gospel of John often does, these editorial details to, 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 to elevate you out of the narrative for just a moment and give you some perspective to look down and see from a broader scope. Verse 16 says, His disciples did not understand these things at first. That is to say, the riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and the shouts of Hosanna and the waving of the palm branches, they understood it one way at first, but after Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and ascended, they saw the whole thing with a new sense of vision, a new spiritual understanding, a new spiritual maturity that I hope that you and I will also see because like the disciples later on, we live after the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension so we can look on Palm Sunday not with the perspective of the crowds on that day, but with the perspectives of the church throughout the ages to see that this Jesus is not just any Jesus. This Jesus is not just any king. So what should we understand about this? And how should we uh, think about what these crowds are saying. I want you to notice in verse 12 that John tells us, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. This is a very important part of this narrative here. This little phrase holds a lot of significance because Jerusalem is, of course, was then and is now the central city of the Jewish faith where the Jewish leaders reside. Jesus has been claiming throughout His earthly ministry to be the King of the Jews, to be the Lord and to be the Messiah. And so far, many of the other Jewish leaders have been agitated by this claim, but they could largely just shrug it off because Jesus never came to Jerusalem before that during His earthly ministry. But now, so long as He has been outside of Jerusalem, He hasn't posed a threat. But now He's coming to Jerusalem, the center of the controversy, the center of authority and power. And as He rides into Jerusalem, there is an authoritative declaration that is being made known very clearly. Jesus coming to Jerusalem was, by earthly evaluation, a bold and dangerous move in the scope of his earthly ministry. But this is the key moment and all of the earthly ministry turns on this hinge where he heads toward Jerusalem and his disciples are concerned about it because they see the rising tension. They know that he's been making these claims, but he's been making them in the small towns outside. But now that he comes to Jerusalem to make the claims, the tensions have risen. But Jesus was always planning to go. It was always Jesus' intent to come to Jerusalem. Listen to what he says earlier in Mark chapter 10. Mark 10 tells us that they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and some were afraid and taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. We are going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Jesus enters Jerusalem 
to bring into the final phase of his earthly ministry the plan that he always knew was the plan. Submitting himself to be captured, submitting himself there to die, and then to be powerfully resurrected and bring about our celebration, of course, of Easter. And Jesus knows what he's doing. But the people didn't, and that's what I want us to see. Jesus knew what he was doing and knew the significance of his riding into Jerusalem, but from the crowd's perspective, it meant something wholly other, something wholly different. The crowds that greeted him had a totally different idea because in their minds, Jesus was coming into Jerusalem in a sense to put his money where his mouth had been. He's claimed to be the king. Here he comes. He's going to take up that kingdom. He's going to sit on the throne. He's going to rule. He's going to overthrow the Roman Empire. And he's going to deliver us from our bondage of the Romans. He's been calling himself the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7, which was well known to be a prophetic, miracle-working, reigning king. And the crowds received him as their earthly ruler, as their earthly king, with hopes to overthrow Rome and to establish forever the reign of Judaism. It would be essentially, if somebody never came to Jerusalem but made all these claims, it would be like saying, look, I'm the governor of Illinois and never ever going to Springfield. Jesus has so far made all these fantastic claims but hasn't come, and now he has. So the tensions are at a high point. So from the people's perspectives, he's coming to take over an earthly kingdom, to reign as an earthly king, which is why they wave their palm branches, why John tells us they're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel, there in verse 13. And John explains that they're quoting from Zechariah. They're quoting from Psalm 118. They're crying out, save us, save us, save us. And they're being asked to be saved from earthly Leaders, They saw Jesus coming to establish His kingdom and their perspective is just horizontal. They don't see Jesus as the Son of God coming to establish a heavenly kingdom. They see Him coming to establish an earthly kingdom. Now with that being said, maybe some of you have heard this before and I might have even been guilty of it in the past of suggesting, but the crowds that are here on Palm Sunday that cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, and blessed is the King of Israel, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There are those crowds that celebrate him as he comes, and then there is another crowd that gathers on what we call Good Friday that cries out something else. He's received with amazement and excitement on this day, but then on Friday, there's another crowd that cries out, crucify him. And oftentimes, Preachers are very guilty of these types of things. They spin the homiletical phrase and they say, see, we can be so fickle. In one moment you can cry out Hosanna. In the next moment you can cry out crucify him. What's the matter with you? But those two crowds are different crowds of people, actually. The people who cried out Hosanna on Palm Sunday are Galilean pilgrims, and John tells us that they witness the miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave, and they rush ahead to Jerusalem to say, this is what he just did, and he's on the way. You should get ready to receive him. It's amazing. And so they are building with excitement over what Jesus can do, but not with a full understanding of who he is. Those crowds of people are different from the crowds of people who on Friday cry out, crucify him with bloodthirst. It's not the same people. Nevertheless, both groups of people still don't fully understand Jesus. 
Both groups of people don't understand the type of king and the type of kingdom that he's come to institute. Both groups of people miss really the full point of who Jesus is. One people miss it because their hopes and expectations are on the wrong plane. The other people miss it because they just hate Jesus. But both miss the point. So what should we say about that? Well, come with me to John 15. Because in John 15, Jesus has an opportunity to address His disciples in a way that's much more private and much more pointed and much more direct As Jesus conducts His earthly ministry, there's always crowds of people around Him. The crowds come and the crowds go. The crowds are excited and the crowds hate Him. The crowds want to anoint Him an earthly king. The crowds want to kill Him. All the crowds of people are so often shifting in their commitments to Jesus and shifting in their understandings of Jesus. And Jesus has a moment in what we call the upper room discourse in John 15 when it's just him and the 11 disciples because one of them has already gone, Judas. Judas is left at this point. He's already gone to betray Jesus. And Jesus is in a moment in the upper room with his disciples to say, this is what I want to tell you about the type of faith that I'm looking for from you. Crowds will come and go and opinions will shift and positivity and reception or negativity and reception will ebb and flow, but this is what I want to say to you so directly. Jesus, we can picture Him almost looking into their eyes and saying, for all that you have heard from me these last three years, I want you to hear this loud and clear. How can you have living and abiding faith that doesn't shift like the tide? He says to them in John 15, look at with me in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, He prunes. That does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Verse 4, He says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus tells these disciples, your commitment to me and your relationship to me is not like the crowds that spike with excitement and then fade away, that have a sense of expectation and then totally shifts. That's there one moment and gone the next. He says to his disciples, if you want to have a real, vital, living relationship with me, you must understand what it means to be united to me by faith using this illustration of the vine and the branches. He says to them that it's possible for someone to appear to be in the vine, but really not. He's talking there about Judas, somebody who's going to be cut off, somebody who's not really in vital living union with the true vine, who appears to be a branch, but is actually pruned and set aside because he doesn't really have true life in Jesus. 
Jesus says, though, but if you're in union with me, if you're trusting in me, your life will bear fruit. And it bears fruit because you're connected to me. Your life and your vitality and your strength and your hope comes from me as the branch draws life from the vine. It's not that you as a Christian believer exist on your own and produce your spiritual life out of nothing and out of nowhere. But everything about your Christian life comes by way of this union with Christ, he says. As a vine gives life to the branch, so your spiritual life is derivative entirely from me. You don't have life apart from me, Jesus says. Branches can't just haul off and then come back and haul off and come back and come and go. He says that's not what spiritual life and vitality looks like. It looks like abiding, he uses that word. I will see it there. And why does this matter so much? On a Palm Sunday, with everything else going on today, it matters because we can be honest about the fact that you and I know people or perhaps have a story ourselves of a time of walking away from Jesus, of rejecting the Christian faith, of saying no and denying and scorning Christ. We know people who have perhaps made a profession at some point and then rejected the faith they professed to believe. Like Judas, in other words, Jesus is saying. That's why Jesus is using this illustration that if you want to know what the Christian life is really look like, it looks like in verse 4, abiding, staying with me. Because the branch that stays connected to the vine has life through the vine. Jesus says, this is the picture of the Christian faith. This is the picture of the Christian life and vitality. It's faith that abides. He uses this word abide in John 15, eight times in 11 verses. Abide, 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 abide. You'll see it as you read it. And it's the Greek word meno. And the simple translation of meno as abide, it just means this. Stay. Stay. That's what Jesus is saying. Stay. Don't be like Judas, Jesus is saying. Judas has left. Judas is gone. Jesus is not staying, in other words. But he's looking at his disciples and he says, you stay. Don't leave like Judas. You stay. There will be others who come and go. There will be some who rise up with incredible excitement and then flame out. Just like the crowds. Jesus is saying, don't be like the crowds that come and go and ebb and flow. You stay with me. And when you stay, I'll give you life. And when you stay, I'll give you vitality. And when you stay, I'll give you real, true, and lasting joy. And I'll hear and answer your prayers. And I'll be with you in all trials. But stay with me and don't leave. Stay with me, Jesus is saying. And I want you to hear that. I want to hear it myself. I want all of us to hear it. Because it doesn't matter who you are. This is a word Jesus has for you in any season of life that you're in. No matter what your circumstances are, Jesus is saying that life is derivative of me. You don't have it apart from me. But in me you have all the life that you need. It's especially a word, though, for students, for our children, for the youth, young adults, young families. Because although I certainly believe that statistics should be taken with a grain of salt, the numbers tell us 
that students between the ages of 17 to 19, of that group, 70% will walk away from the church. 70%. That's because the ages of 17 to 19 are the most volatile age of faith formation and life formation. So much happens, you graduate, everything is ahead of you, you think. You think you've got to figure out the world entirely and take it head on. You get busy, your priorities will shift, your moral compass will be challenged in ways it never has before. And of all the teenagers who leave the church, 80% of them say they never intended to leave. They didn't exit in some grand exit strategy. It just kind of happened little by little as they fizzled out quit caring, stopped coming, and then they're just gone. Little by little, Jesus is saying in John 15, stay. Stay. That's an important thing for me to say to you, for me to say to our students, for me to say to myself and to all of us, stay. Now thankfully, the statistics also tell us that Two-thirds of the group that leaves, roughly 70% come back at some point. They just usually have to have kids first, and then they come back. And we don't, we don't kick against that. We're glad that they come back. But you know what I wish someone had said to me? Because I was of the 80% that left. I wish somebody had looked me in the eyes and said, Stay! Don't go! Don't chase something that you think is better, and you'll find out that it's actually not. Don't look for some sort of excitement that you think is out there that you're not experiencing, hoping that it's going to fill you in ways that Jesus couldn't possibly, when Jesus says to you, stay. The Bible uses the word picture of a broken cistern that can't hold water. We try to fill it, and it's full of cracks, and it just seeps out. But Jesus says, to, if you come to me, I'll give you living water and you'll never thirst again. Jesus says, stay. Don't go, stay. So how should we as a church apply this truth? What should, what should this look like? Well, several things, hopefully briefly here. First of all, we need to be clear about who Jesus is and what he's come to do, that he is the Savior. You are not your children's Savior. That's good news. You know that? Grandparents, you're not your grandchildren's savior. It doesn't work that way. There's only one Jesus, and you're not him. And thank God, our students, our children, our youth need Christ, and we are not him, so we need to be clear about who Jesus is and what he has come to do for them, that he offers them all the grace that they need for their lives, all the mercy and all the love and all the truth that, he, that they need for their lives is found in Jesus. We need to be clear about Christ to them, and then we need to teach them, and then teach them again and again and again with the full complement of Christian education from Sunday school to VBS to youth activities and communicants class and adult education. We need to teach who Christ is and apply the gospel to everyday life. Otherwise, people think that their Christian faith is just a quaint little thing that they stood up one time when they were a teenager, professed, and then walked away from later in life, putting it in the side because it doesn't actually apply to them day by day by day when it does. Christ matters every day, for every age, in all circumstances, and we need to know who he is and what he calls us to do in every age of life and stay with him. We need to do that. We also need to encourage families, don't we? We need to encourage our families. 
especially <laughs> weary parents on Sunday morning who are wondering if it's worth the effort. Who say, I'm not going to make it on time, so why bother at all? And my kid might fuss, and people might look at me. You know what? We do not care. Somebody say amen to that for the love of God. We do not care. Nobody's more conscious about it than the parent themselves, but we do not care. Why? Because we love your families. You are our family, and we need you here. It's actually true that of reasons for children's staying in church, oftentimes one of them that is most significant is meaningful, multi-generational relationships when they see people who are older than them living out the faith and see them as mentors. That's why it's important to be a multi-generational church so people of every age can look around and see people who are like them and different from them all walking together in the faith of Jesus. We need to encourage the, the knowledge of Christ, encourage our families, encourage multi-generationalism in the church in such a way that we will hear the word of Jesus saying to you, whoever you are, stay and don't go. Stay and don't go. So from students to parents and every church member, no matter how much hair you have or don't have or what color it is, stay. Don't go. Stay with Jesus. Abide with Christ is to stay close to Him, to give Him your time, your affection. It may mean that there are other things that will have to go in your life that can't be a priority for you if church is going to be a priority, if Christ is going to be a priority. And if that's true, then so be it. There may be things that have to wait. There may be things you have to say no to or not yet if you're going to say yes to Jesus and give Him all of your time and affection because Jesus says there's an excitement that burns brightly and then fades out quickly. Don't be like that. Stay. And when you stay, Jesus says, my spirit will abide in you and you will have life and have it abundantly. People of God, Jesus is a wonderful Savior who promises everything that you need is found in Him. Let us abide in Him together for the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you please bless our church family? We praise you for the generations of it and thank you, Lord, with wonderful excitement for the youth. We pray that we would be good stewards of their young and tender hearts to point them always to Jesus and encourage them together as we ourselves need to be encouraged to stay with Christ. Bless your people now, we ask, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.